is ape investing, ape as in the great apes, the gorilla types, is it a current fad or is it here to stay? Um, and I would say the second, but it's not it, the name for it probably won't be the same. That's a Reddit term I think he's referring to. I don't think he's yeah. talking about annualized premium. No, I, I, I know. He's talking about a group of investors that get together. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to an exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. Semi-exciting. Mildly. Okay, maybe not that exciting at all, but hopefully, sort of, exciting, maybe. Uh, this is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. Ah, there. Who is, who is a bit of a lag in his brain. There's a, there's a lagging. We got an email, and then I was reading it. Yes, uh, I was seeing the same email. Uh, it is it is an email of a picture of an out of focus newspaper, which is it is a good question though. Um, so this is the personal wealth coach. We're going to continue our conversation about the economy. Um, we have an, an email from John. Uh, the subject line is in all caps, shield, and it says, "Can you weigh in on the shield, please?" And by this, he's not talking about the Marvel Universe. We are not talking about some kind of secretive organization that is looking for and watching superhumans. Though that would be a lot more fun to talk about. He's talking about the Biden administration's acronym. Follow this acronym, please. I, I love government acronyms. It, makes, it gives me great deal of frustration and or humor, depending on what mood I'm in. In this case, it's humor. Uh, the shield is the stopping harmful inversions and ending low tax developments rule, which low tax being one word is a stretch for any kind of acronym. I'll have, you know, I think this should be the shield, but you know, it's the government, so they're allowed to use a hyphen and make two words into one word and make it shield. It is the administration's tax threat to the rest of the world. The flip side of the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's cooperative diplomacy. Um, and what we're, what they're doing there is, it, it is a vague, it's about as vague as the, the acronym for it, uh, aspect of... Uh, this administration's effort to collect taxes that's that that are hiding overseas and other places around the world, either for U.S. corporations or U.S. folks that have moved huge amounts of money into hiding somewhere. On the personal side, non-corporate side, it's a lot less of a problem than it used to be. It's just really hard to have a bank account anywhere if you're a U.S. citizen. What they're talking about is kind of the stick to the carrot. We talked the last couple of weeks about the agreement among, amongst the, the group of seven nations to, to make a minimum for their corporate tax rates at, at 15%. Well, how do you negotiate in a case like that? And it has to do with overlapping laws, and it's, it is not a simple method on how you retaliate against each other for taxes. 
basically what the bottom line is that we're going to fine or sanction individual companies or so on for hiding money overseas as well as the places that they're hiding them so the banks and so on would be um, sanctioned and said told that they can't operate in the United States so it's not really new it's a cool new acronym if you don't actually read the words that are associated with the acronym it's the tax shield <laughs> uh, but it's not as nice when you look at the words in the acronym so what do we think of it what do we weigh on it? it's some form of it is necessary we got to make sure that there's not uh, American companies, American folks out there hiding their taxable income somewhere else overseas. I think we should deal with some of the underlying tax issues to begin with, simplification, making sure we're not taxing people who didn't earn their money in the United States. We still do that, by the way. It's not that many nations do that. You're a citizen, therefore you owe taxes in the United States, even if none of the money was earned here. There's limits. You can say above a certain amount that you earned overseas, but anything you make above that, and that's right around $100,000, just over $100,000. If you're spending your time overseas as an expat, you're not taxed on that money in the United States, but you are taxed on that money wherever you are. If you earn more than that, then you're still taxed where you are, and that can act as a credit against your taxes that are due in the United States up to a certain amount. But the United States still taxes you, uh, even if you didn't make the money here. So the question is, should they do that? Or That's my question. I don't know that answer. Weighing in on the shield side of things, we have a bunch of laws that are convoluted and difficult to understand, to put it lightly, that have developed a tax code that no one understands. I still think it's important that we, the shield... No, you're right. The Cayman Islands are pretty famous for being a tax haven. There's other Caribbean islands as well where they've had like corporate headquarters for thousands and thousands and thousands of corporations who have employees that number each employee, each corporation would have employees numbering more than the total population of the country, but they're based there for tax purposes. Same thing happens in shipping. You put a different flag on a ship to get the best registration um, restrictions, I guess. Setting international standards, both for taxes and for everything else, is probably a very good idea. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, and I agree with that. Having an international standard means that each country kind of supports each other in saying, hey, you can't avoid taxes over there by coming over here. I, I obviously would like to have a better tax code, but at the same time, people need to pay their taxes or it's left to those that do pay the taxes to pay all getting, the taxes. Getting a more simple tax code eliminates the benefits that Congress receives from all the lobbyists. You're right. So it's not going to happen. Yeah. It, it's uh, Follow the money. It's not going to happen. Uh, we do have another question here, though. And is uh, and the question is, again, from John, is ape investing ape as in the great apes the gorilla types is it a current fad or is it here to stay um and i would say the second but it's not it, the name for it probably won't be the same that's a reddit term i think he's referring to i don't think he's yeah. talking about annualized premium no I, I i know he's talking about a group of investors that get together to buy up 
heavily shorted positions that people know they have to sell stock or, or buy stock to cover shorts at some point in the future. It's not new. The name is new. Even doing it as a group isn't new. The way they do it on Reddit is a new meeting place for it. From 30 years ago, there were investment clubs, which is a kind of a legal entity that people can group together and make decisions on what they're investing in and so on. You can set up an account as an investment club, and then you pull your money and you do exactly what these Redditors are doing. Now, these Redditors are doing it individually and just talking about it as a group, which puts them in a place where they have to be extra careful not, not to influence the market in a way that looks like manipulation. If they're doing a pump and dump and they're saying, everybody buy this and I'm going to sell it without telling you, that's illegal. But this has been done in newspapers. It's been done in newsletters. It's been done in all kinds of different formats. It's now being done in Reddit, which is a great place to go for memes and a lot of other things. And the name Ape Investor, it's kind of a statement about we're not a bull, we're not a bear. We're going to come in and be the gorilla in the room when the bears short a stock or, or in other cases where the bulls have have overlong on a stock. One of the things they do, and this is the, the definition from Reddit at least, at least the one I read, is the ape investors find a stock that's been very heavily shorted. In some cases, it's possible to have more short sales outstanding. Shorting meaning you borrowed the stock and then, and then sold it. But when you sell the stock, if you sell it to somebody else, and the somebody else you sell it to can sell it again, so you can actually have more share more shares shorted on a stock than there are shares in the company. Right. If that happens, then there's the potential for crashing the shorts. The shorts have to go back and buy those shares at some point if they get if they get if the stock rises too high. Yeah, and GameStop at its worst, it is it is most shorted was about a hundred and six percent of its float. Oh boy, now we're talking about nautical terms. Where are we getting floats in here? That's the percent of the the shares that are not owned by the company itself, not treasury shares. So every company can buy and sell its own stock, but it can't vote it. The shareholders that are not the company get to vote their shares. So treasury stock is not considered part of the float. So how do you have 106% of your stuff sold already how do you sell more than a hundred percent and the answer is when you short something you just borrowed it from somebody and you sold it and the other person still owns it it still needs to go back to them but now you've sold this stock and that other person that just bought it from you could sell it as well you at some point have to buy the stock back to give it to the person you borrowed it from which means that you have obligations to own more than 100%. It doesn't actually mean that there's more than 100% of the stocks out there. It just means that there's obligations to buy that stock that's more than the total amount of the stock out there. I know that's a complicated sounding thing. When you start borrowing stuff, it leads to strange. This is how money is created as well. This is not, like Jake said, this is nothing new. In the 1990s, the same thing was happening. Only it was done with newsletters. You had to pay a lot of money for a newsletter, and the newsletter would say, this stock is excessively shorted. You should buy it, and the price will go up when you buy it, and that'll force the short sellers to buy it some more, which will cause it to go up some more. And But most of what's been 
driving the stock prices up on things like GameStop is not short sellers having to buy the stock. It's people who are buying the stock to try to force the short sellers up. Right. And these things occur during bull markets. When you get a major bull market, you get some form of craziness that's found some way to completely ignore earnings, completely ignore the fundamentals of the company that they're buying in, and run the stock up because a bunch of people buy it. And is it does it go on forever is part of the question. No, it doesn't go on forever. It collapses and then something new comes up in the next bull market. Right. It, it isn't sustained long term because short sellers don't usually sell something so short so long, especially in bull markets. Short sellers tend to be less strong. They're more they're It's it's counterintuitive. You would think there'd be more short selling in a bull market, but it's not because that's what's causing the market to go up. But at the depths of the pandemic, when people were convinced that the end of the world was nigh, short selling took off and the Reddit folks were able to take advantage of that. And in taking advantage of it, some of them made a tremendous amount of money and some of them lost a tremendous amount of money. So you just keep that in mind. This is not a foolproof system by any stretch. It is there are it, it has to do with timing and the people that are the ones writing the posts on Reddit or writing the newsletter are the ones that have already purchased. So just know during, that. During a runaway bull market, you get craziness like this. It varies from each bull market to each bull market. Matter of fact, there's one about the, the 1720 South Sea, uh, amazing delusions. And it's the extraordinary popular delusions and the, and the madness of crowds by Charles McKay. The same kind of silliness was going on in 1720. You could say there were ape investors in 1720. They just didn't call themselves apes. So this goes on during raging bull markets, and it ends in the bear market. During a bull market, it's really relatively easy to be very aggressive and make money. I say relatively easy. But you don't know when it's going to dip and when you're going to be one of the people who don't make money. And the other thing about this kind of transaction if you buy a stock that has good earnings and is making good product and is doing good things over time, it tends to rise. Nobody loses money. Literally, nobody loses money in that long-term transaction. Because they're all gaining from adding value to the system. They're being, it's like if you build furniture, if you bought the lumber and you bought the tools and you put it together and make furniture and it's furniture people want to use they're willing to pay you the money because they're going to get some benefit out of that furniture and you're willing to take the money because you're getting benefit for making it. That Nobody loses in that situation. It's kind of like the people who buy houses that are beat up and they're getting foreclosed on and they're run down and they fix them up really nicely and then they sell them for a profit. That added value to the house and is a legitimate way of making a profit opposed to somebody who's just flipping houses. The people who are just flipping houses without doing anything to them, eventually that comes to an end. And I hate to say this, because it's painful. But there is a bear market going to come eventually. Yeah, it's true. And, and when then the correction will come eventually. And when we get a correction or a bear market, suddenly the apes and the crazy people and the people who are flipping things, flipping houses in a, in a bull market in housing, suddenly discover that the money they borrowed and the money they've invested goes away suddenly and they disappear like a flash and they're gone. Some other craziness will come back. That particular group of crazies won't come back because they're broke now. But there'll be another group of crazies that come along later. It and just, sometimes it is the it, nature of it. Yeah, and sometimes it's the same people again and again and again. Um, Michael Milliken appeared, his name appeared, appeared repeatedly in sort of the similar situations of 
uh, when the junk bond market collapsed. Now, this is 1980s talk. Now we're getting into ancient, ancient history. But his name appeared again and again around the bond industry for the next several decades. So I wouldn't be surprised if Roaring Kitty, the, uh, the, the greatest famed uh, short seller of the apes, is around for a long, long time. He's made a lot of money on this. He's uh, not a short seller, is he? It, well, no, he's not a short seller. In fact, he bought GameStop when it was actually a good deal to buy GameStop, when it was worth more to so buy the company saying, than what the company owned. So you're saying Roaring Kitty is the anti-short seller? Yeah, he's the, the kind of the head of the, the apes uh, around yeah, GameStop. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You said he was a short seller. Oh, I'm sorry. No, he's totally not a short seller. He, he bought... Uh, Red, he bought. He was posting on Reddit that he bought GameStop at four dollars a share. He's this, a long buyer. He's a long buyer, and then he doubled down and said, "Everybody buy GameStop. It, it's it's being shorted beyond belief. It doesn't make any sense." Oh, Elon Musk is kind of famous for his dueling with the short sellers around Tesla. Um, Tesla had at several points a quarter of its float shorted. People were convinced that Tesla wasn't going to make it because they had to get over some pretty dramatically tall hurdles. They had to increase battery technology way beyond what was the current. They had to build facilities to make those batteries in a way that was less expensive than the current. And then they had to make a bunch of quality cars that people wanted to buy again later on. Rather than flash in the pan, you know, this is the first of its kind type purchases. So the, a lot of short sellers on that. And Elon Musk encouraged them and taunted them and uh, wanted more of them because it meant that if he continued to do well in the company, they would actually eventually have to buy the company to give the shares back that they'd already purchased. So it, was he an ape before the term ape? Probably. Um, the, the reality is that Reddit's memes, the whole concept of the memes, if you've looked at any GIF, GIF, depending on how you pronounce it on Facebook or anywhere else, that has some kind of memorable anything about it, it's a meme. And most of those memes came from Reddit. But I would also say that the vast majority of the people do not remember all of the memes. And the meme name Ape is probably going to go away at some point. It's going to be replaced by some other name later. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a nice thing to see echoes of history, to see rhyming occurring. Mark Twain said this really clearly. Uh, history doesn't re repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we're seeing a rhyme here. And it happens in major bull markets, particularly right at the beginning of the bull markets. You tend to see that stuff start to, to vanish toward the ends of the bull markets. So the fact that it's still around is good news for us. But I said also that I wanted to talk about a different subject this hour. And that's the federal student loan loss. Losses of federal student loans? How, where do they put them? Well, um, they know where they are. The, the government during the Trump administration and continued through the Biden administration, put a stay, the ability to, to just basically not pay on your student loan during the pandemic. Uh, and there was an estimate that was given from the Congressional Budget Office at the time of it, which 
Those poor guys, those poor people that are in that budget office, they have to make numbers from raw guesses in a lot of cases. Nobody knew how long the pandemic was going to be or how long uh, the abatement to the payments were going to be. But they said, all right, we're going to project that the government's going to lose $15 billion of, of revenue from the interest payments on the student loans. This is something when people talk about the debt of the United States or the debt of the government, there are assets that offset them. There's $1.6 trillion in federal student loans out there that belong to the government. And those interest payments go to the government. And anybody who's had those loans forgiven and then get hit by an IRS bill for all the gains that they had in the forgiveness, they can understand this is a government thing and they don't like to lose money. Well, the administration just projected in its budget that the long-term losses will likely be around $68 billion on those same student loans that, they, that the Trump administration earlier had said 15. And it's the same people that are saying it. It doesn't change with the Biden to Trump administration. It's the same bureaucrats that are making these estimates. And I would even come back to that and say there's something missing from this explanation. When you say I'm not going to pay my student loan, it doesn't turn the interest off. It doesn't turn the amount that's being charged to you off. Your loan grows during that time period. And presuming that you pay it all back, the government actually made money by allowing people not to pay for a while. Unless we forgive those student loans we haven't really lost the money in the interest payment. It's actually going to be more long term. And that's weird because the current revenue loss is projected this year to be $68 billion. The long term is that we're probably going to get double that back, which is not good for the student loan borrowers who now have larger student loans that they were allowed. I'm going to put air quotes on there for their own best interest to not pay, it's just going to grow with time and be a much larger, longer-term debt. One of the problems with student loans is that you can't get rid of them through a bankruptcy filing. Right. Like debts to the IRS, you can't get rid of it. It's federal. And it is a, it's a chain around people's neck. And I think we need to look, just like the tax code, we need to look at something fundamental. I think there needs to be a justification when loans are made to students. Yeah. What, do you expect to actually make a, a job out of this? Uh, is this something that you expect to get paid for? In other words, I think we should target student loans towards educations that are needed in the economy to create jobs. rather than. And I, I use the term advanced basket weaving. Loosely, I realize there are probably some profitable basket weavers right. out there that'll you, be. You I actually have a friend who is uh, who has a master's degree in basket weaving and makes a very decent living in Austin with a company that sells baskets. So, advanced basket weaving is not the a no profit uh, center that it well, used to be. One of the things. Let me give you an example. A degree in English literature might be a better uh, one to say. There you go. Well, at least you can get a job teaching, teaching as long as you get a teaching certificate with it. You can get that for basket weaving, too. They don't care what you got your degree in as long as you got the certificate. For instance, um, marine biology. A bachelor's degree in marine biology is not likely to get you a job that'll pay back the student loan. No, it is not. It is a rather expensive education. And both of those thoughts have been filled for years. And the point is that 
if we were to take the student loan system and say, if you're getting a job, if you're getting an education in a technical area or in a uh, academic area where we need, we need people to know this, we'll help pay for it. Rather than simply saying, if you get a degree in anything, and I mean, when I say get a degree in anything, a lot of the online degrees, that's where the worst performance on student loans is the people who get the online degrees just to get a degree. And then they realize that the fact that they got it from, well, you what was it, the University of Samoa that's used in 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 uh, in, in Better Call Saul, <laughs> University of Samoa, <laughs> getting a degree online from the University of Samoa probably will not get you much of a job anywhere because the degree is not accredited. And even the- if it is a even if it is accredited, the fact where you get the degree becomes very important. Yes. So, I mean, the underlying here is that there's a lot of debt out there. President Biden has said he wants to he supports forgiving $10,000 in student debt for every borrower with a federal loan. That that might be nice to support, but there's no way Congress is going to pass that. Not in the current circumstances. It's absolutely impossible to get that one passed this year for sure. If they put it as part of a budget at some point in the future, I don't think it would even qualify to be in a conference type package. So they couldn't even get it through in a budget deal. Um, it's a pie in the sky Democrat wish to, to forgive a bunch of student loan. Um, there's got to be a better approach to this. Uh, one, this is, there's an even more fundamental problem underlying the student loan crisis, and that's the college crisis that public universities have become quite expensive. They're public. Let's put some air quotes around that. If, if you're living in a dorm at the University of Texas for four years, it costs more than $100,000 now to get a bachelor's degree. That's just your basic public education bachelor's degree. It costs $100,000 plus to get a bachelor's degree today. That's what happened. I mean, the prices for, for college have been going up at about the same rate as the prices for health insurance. Well, it's because the government has its thumb very firmly in this, air quotes, free market system with Medicare on the, on the health side and with student loans on the college side. There's no competition for price. You don't have to. Who would think about negotiating a price with a college? You just don't do that. They have a fixed price and you pay it. Uh, That's what you pay. You might get a scholarship. You might get a grant, but you're going to pay the price. Well, why? Well, because the the money is available to anyone who is going to college through a federal student loan. The college doesn't have to negotiate. They're not really in competition against each other anymore. Because Uncle Sam is sitting there with a blank check saying, all right, when do, you, when do you want this written out? I'll just give it to you, whatever you want to charge. So there needs to be some background into what degrees are important to make a living and what is in demand at the moment and maybe getting better interest rates on better types of degrees. I don't know. But again, this is not something that's likely to happen as long as the argument is whether we should forgive them or not forgive them we're not moving beyond the problem underneath it of, hey, 
you have influenced the marketplace so much that it doesn't matter if you forgive them now. Are you going to do it forever? Are you just going to say forever? Everybody gets $10,000 to spend on college? Because if you forgive a bunch of people today, what about next year or the year after that when the people that are graduating today get out and say, hey, I wasn't available during that 10000 period, but I like it now. This is a problem. What about people that had their student loans, they had a lot of student loans, and they got them refinanced through a private institution? Well, the government's not going to pay them. So there's a lot of problems with this. This is why I say that it's not likely to happen. It's important to know that there's an asset underneath the debt here. The government owns an asset, and it's really hard if you own an asset to give it away for free. Um, I think we've probably kicked that particular subject enough times. What do you think? We, I think it's kicked. We, we have a, another question. Sticky prices. Yeah. Um, do you want to take that one? I haven't had a chance to look well, at it yet. Sticky price consumer price index is calculated by the Atlanta Fed. And it basically is they've looked at things in, the, in society and in the world, well, in, in the world of economics in the United States, whose prices don't change rapidly. Now, the opposite of that would be food and energy, which change price very, very rapidly. Used cars, for example, change prices rather dramatically in a short period of time, whereas new cars, by the way, do not change prices rapidly. Yeah, if you think about the price of a tomato, um, tomatoes during tomato harvest season are quite cheap. During the middle of winter, they're not as cheap. In fact, they can fluctuate as much as 100% during the year. Now, the price is so low that most people don't even notice that they're paying a uh, dollar for a bunch rather than 50 cents for a bunch. But that fluctuation on a large scale is hard to not offset when you're looking at, at inflation. You don't have 50% inflation during the year. You actually just had fewer tomatoes because it wasn't harvest season and we ate them. And there's a reason that new cars don't change prices very rapidly. When they come off the assembly line, there's a suggested manufacturer's retail price on the car. And it doesn't change during the year that it's sitting on the car lot. It's just there's a suggested manufacturer's resale price. Now there's discounts to that. So it doesn't change very rapidly. The other thing is if the car dealer has a lot of cars sitting on its lot and they decide to raise the prices they get to pay more property tax on the car every year. So they, there's, there's costs associated with changing the price in certain things. Those costs cause prices to be relatively sticky in certain items. Now, the Atlanta Fed has a sticky price index. It really is not, you know, there's, there's been some discussion about the sticky price index isn't changing, is to get rid of the noise in the price index. It's, it's up 4.5% over the last 12 months as opposed to 39 for the CPE. I, I think fundamentally the sticky prices have been mostly removed from the grocery. They're using barcodes. Now those price stickers were just, they'd left sticky stuff all over food. And yeah, so yep, yep. sticky prices are just, Oh, it's the wrong subject, huh? Right. Well, there's an example in the, in the article that, that John sent us. And when you print a menu, you put the price on the menu. And if you have an expensive printed menu, you don't want to change changing the price on the food is more expensive sometimes than you get out of the food. So, Prices tend to move slowly in certain items and they move fast in others. There's really not a lot of difference in between that and the core CPE. Now, CPE is consumer. What is it? I always forget that. Consumer. Price expenditures. Price expenditures. Yeah, anyway. The point is consumer price. The CPE index is the one the Fed follows, and it's not as popular as the CPI. The reason it's not as popular is very simple. It comes out later. It comes out from the Commerce Department rather than the Labor Department. 
But the CPE is a lot more accurate because the CPE measures what people are actually spending money on in a given month. They look at what did, what did people spend money on and did the prices go up or did they go down? Whereas the consumer price index is a fixed basket that includes some weird this, stuff. This is why we were having trouble. PCE, P, not not CPE. Yeah, that's right. PCE. Yes, uh, and you can tell it's Saturday because we've been going a whole week saying our jargon all day long, and both of us were like PC CPE CP, what? Um, consumer price expenditures. Is it price? Anyway. <laughs> I've, I've personal it. consumption expenditures personal consumption expenditures and that's the, the personal consumption expenditures I think we just say it instead of saying the acronym for a while are a much more accurate indication of what's going on with inflation this consumer price index for example one larger one large component in the consumer price index is the rental value of your house if you own your house or if you've got a mortgage on your house, how much could you rent it for? And so if, the, if what you could potentially rent it for goes up, then it, your house, inflation is considered to have gone up even though you're not renting your house, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. And there's a lot of things like that. In there. That's imaginary inflation just in case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, which, is, which is why the Fed follows the PCE. Yeah. Which is far more accurate. And if you take the core PCE, it leaves out the more volatile items, and that's pretty close to what we see in the sticky price index. By the way, the core PCE, since we're talking about it, and since we're about to have to break for commercials anyway, the core PCE was up 3.9% from a year ago, which caused some alarming headlines to come out in the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times and things like that. This is the thing that the Fed really looks at to look at, at inflation. So when it's up a lot, the inflation hawks will go, whoa, this is a, this is a real problem. But if you go back two years to 2019 and you average the gains, because it actually went down in 2020, and you average the gains out, it comes to 2.26%, which is exactly the what the Fed has said they wanted a little over 2% inflation. And here at the probable worst inflation short term that we're likely to see in the near future, we're getting 2.26%. It's pretty much exactly what the Fed was shooting for. So I think the inflation scare is a false alarm of major proportions. Right. We've got to play some commercials because this program doesn't pay us, but it still has to support the people that are operating the board and so on. So we're going to play some commercials and we'll be back on the other side with more of the personal wealth coach. If you'd like to contact us during the break, we've got emails out here at Jeff at TPWC.com or Jake at TPWC.com. And we'll be back on the other side of these very important announcements. And we're back with more of the personal wealth coach with Jake and Jeff Lure. So uh, we got more to talk to you about today. What What is the next subject on your list? I think I have a list. Oh, do you have a list? I do, but I've got it buried. Um, I've got a uh, quick one. Uh, payments are about to start going out this just in the next couple of weeks on the first check for the uh, child credit, the child tax credit. You, a lot of people should, if you've got a kid as of your last filing of taxes, uh, 
uh, or multiple children, you should have already received a letter saying, hey, expect to receive a letter. Yeah, that's literally what the letter says. You should expect to receive a letter talking about what we would talk to you about right now, but we don't know. Only they use a lot more words to say that. Uh, They do give you the opportunity, if you know your income's a bit on the high end, to tell them not to send you the check. Because if they send you the check and your income's above the limit, you may have to pay it back when you're paying your taxes. So just be aware of that. Uh, that those checks are going to start going out. It's an interesting experiment to see if we can give a monthly check to people and see if they spend it appropriately for their kids better than if you just give them a massive refund in February through April of multiple thousands of dollars that they blow on a bunch of big purchases and really don't spend a lot on their kids. That's pretty traditional in America. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but that's going to start. It's nice little piece of information, and it's going to be starting in the next couple of weeks. I suspect if anybody's listening to us out there, some of them are drawing Social Security. Yes, I would say so. They're less likely to have a child tax credit check coming in than a Social Security check, and probably it's not going to be checks in any of those cases. It's likely to be going to a bank. But there's some good news for Social Security recipients, probably. The Social Security Administration measures the cost of living adjustment that they that you'll get at the end of the year based on third quarter inflation from the previous year. And it looks like third quarter inflation from the previous year, if it keeps on like it's doing second quarter, basically it looks like 5% inflation. So quite conceivably, you could see a 5% increase in your Social Security check just because inflation was very, very low last year and it's relatively high this year. So this blip in inflation that's going by could be very beneficial for many of our listeners. That's very nice. It's always nice to get a 5% raise for no particular reason at all. Right. Now, this next subject, we talked about this in the newsletter. Um, Retail sales dropped in May by 1.3%, which sounds like the opposite of everything we have been saying for the past hour and 50 minutes. You said the news is good about the economy. How can retail sales be dropping? Would you like to answer that question? Well, they're up 20% over where they were in February of last year before the pandemic started. So having a 1.3% drop is a very tiny amount of how much spending is up, even when you're measuring from pre-pandemic. We're spending a lot more money. We said this last week. It's not sustainable to spend at this rate. But expect it for a little while longer as people get through their uh, pandemic shut-in, I'm going to go out and eat stage. Restaurants are packed. One of the big things that's happening, and the reason 1.3% drop occurred, is people are spending less on things, on stuff. Uh, And one of the reasons they're spending less on things is they're not buying as many cars. They're not buying as many cars right now, not because they don't want to buy more cars, but because there's a shortage of cars because of the chip shortage. It's getting hard to get stuff to buy things. At the same time, people are shifting over. And if you've been to a restaurant recently, you undoubtedly have experienced this. The restaurants are jammed. Here's another really good anecdotal thing. We bought a a full-body sunproof swimming suit for my daughter. Uh, yesterday because her old one was coming apart because she's been using it okay so 
We ordered a new one. We are Amazon Prime users, so that's usually like a one or two day shipping. Expect your shipment to arrive in a month. So we started looking at other swimsuits. Yep, it's a month. Uh, It's because things are harder to move around until the supply chain really gets moving. But it really is because it's on a slow boat from China. It's going to take a while to get here. And then it's going to have to get on a slow truck from San Diego. And then it's going to have to drive somewhere nearby and get off into a a fast van from Amazon.com. This is all good in a weird sort of way. Prices are up. Delivery times are slow. This provides an opportunity for companies to expand into the areas that are causing the bottlenecks. Yeah. Which means that they'll ultimately hire more people, which means that they'll ultimately generate more money. And this, uh, you're exactly right here. This is, this is the beyond silver lining. This is the blue sky behind the cloud is that this is the sort of irritation that causes consumers to change where they're purchasing things. And if you have a local place that's charging slightly more than what they charge in China, but you can get it today instead of going a month without it, if there's still a place that sells it in the United States, that's where the business is going to go. So that's way beyond silver lining. This is what we need to re remove the chain from China and put it in the United States. This is why we're not going into a spiral. Of, one of the reasons we're not going into a spiral of inflation like uh, and, and stagflation like Japan did, which people have been afraid of. We are still innovating. We're still allowing businesses to fail. We're still seeing things happen and change in the economy. Expansion is still going on. Automation is still going on. We're not trying to preserve things. Matter of fact, one of the great mysteries, and we mentioned this in the newsletter, is layoffs last week were 411,000. Now, before the pandemic hit, layoffs were running 200 and some thousand, and that's kind of normal, just a normal turnover. So we have an extra quarter million people, round figures, being being laid off every month over what we had when the economy was running at full tilt. But we have shortages of of where everybody's advertising for employees. You think they have such demand for jobs and such booming economy. Why I don't know. Frankly, I looked and looked around. Maybe you've got some idea, Jake. Why and where all these people are being laid off? I, I've got an answer for you, and it's not complete. It's a bit of an answer, and that is the quit index, which isn't tracked at all in in the unemployment because these people that quit don't get unemployment. They don't get marked as an as a layoff. But the quit index is extremely high right now. So what does that mean for unemployment? Well, it doesn't mean much for unemployment because if you quit, you don't get it. But it's indicative of what's going on. And the surveys that are coming back on that quit index are that people are going, the companies are going back to on-site. You're saying you you have to come here and um, and work here. And people are quitting because they've gotten used to being able to work remotely. They feel like they're doing fine working remotely. And they're very quickly getting a job somewhere else working remotely. Here's the part that is the answer, though. Quite often, if they're a really good employee, the employer says, don't quit, let us lay you off. And so we're seeing a lot of that. If they're saying, hey, we really like you, we put you in a weird place, we made you go out remote working, 
Now you don't want to come back. Well, if you don't come back, we're laying you off. And it's really happening. I, oh yeah, I definitely see that happening. Um, it's not happening in big tech, but it's happening in little tech. It's also happening in, in smaller businesses. So people are saying, come back. If you don't come back, we have to lay you off instead of we have to fire you. And there have been incentives for layoffs. There have been incentives uh, in unemployment insurance and a lot of other things for companies that lay off. They've been getting grants and, and paycheck protection loans and so on saying, hey, look, we've been impacted. We had to lay people off. So it is, it's two years ago, laying someone off, that would make your unemployment insurance go up. It would make, uh, it would be costly to a business to lay them off rather than let them quit. Well, unemployment insurance now for companies that did any layoffs at all is already at the maximum rate that can be charged. So laying more people off doesn't really hurt them that much. So they're doing it. And that's, that is my partial answer is that, that that quit index is indicative to me that some of those layoffs are really people saying, no, I'm just not coming back to the on-site premises. Could be. That's my uh, thought. It could be. The only, the only thing I was able to think of is the increase in productivity that's going on. Yeah. It's Companies pretty are phenomenal. discovering they can do more with fewer people and they may be laying some individuals off. Yeah. But there's no mass layoffs going on. I looked all over to see if I could find some mass layoffs it's really not. shutting down. Yeah. And that's why I say it's not happening in big tech. It's not happening in places that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of employees. Those are tiny amounts of layoffs happening there. It's in, it's in the, the smaller businesses. And we're out of time for this day and this hour. Yeah. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do talk to people. Isn't that crazy? You do. Yeah. That's weird. We uh, give fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management for trusts and foundations and corporations and partnerships and people of high net worth. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting during the week locally at 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can uh, look for our podcast out there. You can listen to radio uh, program episodes going back lots of years. You can also use the contact form on there or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.